Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You are now entering the Pseudo-Archaeology Podcast, a show that uncovers what's fact, what's fake, and what's fun in the crazy world of Pseudo-Archaeology. Hello and welcome to the Pseudo-Archaeology Podcast, episode 114. I am your host, Dr. Andrew Kinkella, and tonight on a very special edition of the Pseudo-Archaeology Podcast, your dreams and prayers are answered, my friends, as I brag about myself even more than usual, and we talk about the Maya Cenotes. Okay, so why, pray tell, am I talking about the Maya Cenotes today? Well, I'll tell you why this is going down. I was listening to the Life and Ruins podcast, and Carlton Gover over there took some time to talk about his own research. And while I was listening to that, I was like, wait a minute. Here's someone focusing on themselves and using their own research on their podcast. Wait a second. I can do that, too. I, of course, became immediately jealous and realized that I had to steal that idea for myself and make it my own. And so that's what I've done, my friends. Today, we're going to go over... My own life in ruins, in a way. My life in the Maya cenotes. So, I know that you tune in here for pure knowledge, right? And not cheap entertainment. So, I'm going to teach you some stuff today, okay? This is just going to be pure teaching. It's going to be serious. There's going to be no laughing in here. And you better be taking notes, okay? You better not be doing the dishes. Like I know some of you do while you listen to this. Just be honest. You do it, right? You might be driving. Well, you need to pull over and take notes because I'm going to drop some knowledge on you. And realize that Carlton's idea here has unleashed the Kraken, okay? Because... If you think you've heard me brag before, oh, friends, this is going to be a festival of bragging, the likes of which the podcasting world has never seen. Because this is going to start with, and you can say it with me, so there I was in Belize. Okay, this is my granddaddy's story, you guys. This is what I did my dissertation on. These are the Maya cenotes. So 
what are cenotes? You know, kind of an odd word you don't hear every day. And when you type it into word, it always autocorrects wrongly, often to the word denotes, as happened to me about four billion times while I was trying to write my dissertation. So cenotes are simply sinkholes in the Maya world that are filled with fresh water. So that area of the Maya world is all limestone, right? It's a limestone base, the whole Yucatan Peninsula area. And limestone is porous. So water over time kind of rots it away, very Swiss cheese effect. And as that happens, as the years and millennia go by, these sinkholes break down and they fill with groundwater. Now, I think the term sinkholes, if you've never seen one, it makes it sound smaller than it really is. You guys want to think of these as mini lakes, right? That's how they feel when you come across them. You're kind of walking through the jungle. And I have to say, when you're walking through the jungle, it's a very small world. And what I mean by that is the jungle is so dense that you can't really see that far in front of you or behind you or up or down, really. You're just in like this little green, wet cave. And that's why you can get lost like so quick in the jungle, right? And you're just in that. And sometimes when you're walking through the jungle, you're just in this green, dank salad for hours. But then when you all of a sudden come across a cenote, it's just it's open all of a sudden and you just see like the sun. You know, it can be very dim in the jungle. It's sunny and there's this big water right there. And it's just, man, it is extremely pleasant when you come across one of these in the jungle. Now, as I said, these are fresh water and the Maya would have used these as sources of fresh water, but oh, so much more, right? Because they're so special. And again, to give you an idea of size, like um, if there's such thing as an average, I'd say uh, maybe maybe 100 feet across, maybe a little bit more, like so, something like 300 feet across would be pretty big. And something like, oh, 50 or 60 feet across would be pretty small. So just to give you guys an idea, and in terms of depth, they're all over the place. The shallowest one I ever recorded was like six feet deep. The deepest one was 240 feet deep. So they're sort of all over the place, right? In terms of their their size and their shape. It just depends on how the stone rotted away and fell in on itself. Now, how was I intro to this, right? How can I say this whole so there I wasn't Belize thing? This comes back to 1997 and I had worked in Belize for two years. By that point, I'd worked there in 93 and 96, my first two years. And Lisa Lucero, my good friend Lisa was starting her own project in 1997. And I had an opportunity to be the field director on this brand new project. It was gonna be the Valley of Peace archeology span project. And I was really excited, I was really looking forward to it. And the setup was there was 120 square miles of Belizean jungle that had almost no archaeological research done. And man, when I think back to those days, I feel so fortunate that I was able to 
have that experience. I mean, 120 square miles and you just get to try and find something, you know, this is, this is movie time, you know, kind of stuff. And just as the years went by, I, I just think back, it's, it was, it really was an amazing thing to experience, but anyway, it was hard to figure out where to start. And as we started our project, as we kind of looked for sites in this miles and miles and miles of jungle, we had gotten this map of the area. And at the top, at the northern portion, there was a string of 25 cenotes all in a row, right? Because of a geologic fault, basically. Now, the cenotes, if we want to get real science-y in terms of the cenotes in our survey area, some of them are called scarp foot springs, the geologic term. Basically, you have this fault and the water kind of comes out in, in that fault. The cenotes still form in vaguely the same way, but the, the fault kind of adds to it. And then there are other cenotes in the area that are more very classically round cenotes like you think of. Now, we had only seen these on the map, right? We had, hadn't visited them. And it was a big thing. We're like, dude, we got to get out there. This is like, there's almost no roads in that area. And this is miles and miles of walking. So Lisa and I and two of the Belizean staff, the people who we hired in Belize, the, the four of us went out to find what was later numbered as pool one. I numbered all the pools just as I came across them. So if you look at a map of the area, the pools are sort of numbered all weird. It's, it's because... They're numbered based on historically, you know, pool number one is the first one found. Pool number two is the second one found and so on. Just getting out there. And we had a couple of fits and starts. And then finally, when we made it, I was so bowled over and so impressed by just the sheer awesomeness of it, the beauty of it. I mean, just this deep blue in the middle of the jungle. I had just about started my master's program and I asked Lisa, I'm like, Lisa, can I do these cenotes? Can I do this pool one, this cenote for my master's thesis? And she's like, yeah, sure. That sounds great. So I was like elated. I'm like, here we go. Here's my project. And then starting in 97 for the next three years, the summers of 1998 and 1999, I studied pool one, right? The cenote pool one. I, I visited a couple of the other cenotes, but everything was focused on pool one. I did my very first diving there with one of the other students, Anna. She and I did the very first dive in pool one in 1998. I, I was able to wrap up my thesis data collection by the end of the 1999 season. And then I put that together. I put it out. My whole big idea of using that to get a community college job didn't work at all. And then I was like, hey, maybe I need a PhD. So back to Belize in 2001. And then in 2001, two, three, four, five, not six, seven and eight, all those summers, I worked in that area expanding on pool one and exploring basically the other 24 cenotes. There ended up being like two and a half that I didn't get to, but I went to all the others. And as I spent those days and weeks and months in the jungle, walking from cenote to cenote, experiencing the jungle, I really thought a lot about how the ancient Maya used the cenotes. And both my master's and my dissertation were on 
how the ancient Maya related to these cenotes, right? Some cenotes you could tell were used for ritual purposes. And how do you tell that? Based on there may have been a water shrine type building built right next to them where you could literally do ritual right at the edge of the pool. And there were a handful of pools that had stuff like that. Many of the other pools didn't. Some of the other pools were just simply used for water, right? Makes sense. And I'm sure that some of the pools were used for both. You know, sometimes they were for ritual purposes. Sometimes it was just because, hey, you need fresh water and this is a great source. I was also looking at how these pools were related to the other Maya sites in the area to like which sites kind of had jurisdiction over them, if that makes sense. Which sites would have had people maybe walk out to them in sort of a ritual pilgrimage of some manner. So I had a lot to look at, right? Those summers really are the defining experience of my archaeological life. And I know that the study of the cenotes, the writing about them, the diving in them, the doing the archaeology around their banks, that is the thing that will be chiseled on my archaeological tombstone. And I'm totally, totally fine with that, right? The pools of Carablanca. That's the name of the area. Carablanca means white face. Now... When we return, the history of the cenotes in terms of how the ancient Maya used them. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome back to the Pseudo-Archaeology Podcast, episode 114. I am your host, Dr. Andrew Kinkella, and we are talking about me and what I did for my research. And that is the ancient Maya cenotes. And in our last little bit there, I talked about how I kind of got into this and, and, you know, I kind of expanded on it over the years. And even though my first attempt at getting a master's thesis was successful, getting a job from that was not. So I went onward. I worked for years more. I got a PhD and that was successful. And now I'm a big, super important college professor at Moore Park College in Southern California. Now, in terms of the Maya and their relationship to cenotes, there's a lot there. So we already talked about how the whole area is limestone, which enables cenotes to be formed in the first place. Maya sites are sometimes built not caring about cenotes at all. A lot of times Maya cities are located based on Fertile soil, that can be the biggest thing because corn is the big prime mover here. You always got to remember that. When in doubt, it's all about corn. But of course, 
cenotes are such unique places on the landscape and basically give you water almost no matter what, that they're going to be important, you know, either for direct access to water or for ritual. Now, when did the Maya first start exploiting cenotes in, in this manner? Definitely during the classic period. The classic period is from AD 250 to 900 AD. We see a lot of it in the late classic. That's when all the little sites that I worked at that were right next to the pools, like all the broken potsherds and that kind of stuff that we would find would all date between like mm, 700 and 900 AD, maybe 600 and 900 AD. So that's, that's like prime late classic and into terminal classic right there at the end around 900 AD or so. That's the classic Maya collapse. And we do have pretty good data that, there was a series of droughts right at that time, too. So a lot of this stuff kind of makes sense, sense, right? That the ancient Maya would go to these nodes of water ritual when there was drought, right? They would ramp up. You see the same kind of thing in the cave world, too, that you get a lot more of this during like the terminal classic period. And same kind of thing, right? You know, things are going poorly. You're going to double down on the ritual and hope for the best. Now, the classic period wasn't the only time that the cenotes were used by the Maya. They're definitely used by them in the post-classic. The most famous cenote of them all is the sacred cenote at Chichen Itza. And that has a lot of history that goes back to kind of the early post-classic period, you know, like 900, 1000 AD, even into the classic a little bit, like the latest classic. Chichen Itza is such a huge site. It's known for its early post-classic component, again, from like, oh, you know, 950 to 1250 AD or so, give or take plus or minus. But there was an earlier form there, too. And it has such an iconic cenote. It's the one. If you've ever seen a photo of an ancient Maya cenote, chances are it is the one at Chichen Itza where it has the steep sides. The water doesn't start until like 60 feet below. You know, it's got kind of a sheer drop and the water's down below. I've been there before to check it out. It really is very majestic and very breathtaking in that natural world kind of way. Very impressive. Now, in terms of the pre-classic earlier times, you know, did the Maya use cenotes, oh, you know, a thousand BC or 500 BC or that kind of thing? I'm sure they did, but there's very, very little research or data that shows that. Now, it might just be that we haven't really found it yet. There might be a few bits and bobs out there, but I just I don't really see it. Uh, maybe I'm sure they use cenotes for stuff, but maybe not in an organized fashion. Maybe that only comes in by the time we get to the classic period. You know, maybe maybe they don't build like little water shrine buildings right next to the cenote until that time. I don't think I've ever seen one that's older than, you know, 600 AD or something like that. Now, in terms of this show being the pseudo-archaeology podcast, I mean, the one big question we want to ask, of course, is how much human sacrifice was there, Kinkella? I mean, come on. Didn't they, like, cut people up and chop their hearts out and then throw them in the cenote? I mean, come on. You need to produce here, Kinkella. Okay, I'll produce for you. So, in this whole cenote world, in this water ritual, and again, there's many aspects to it, but the one that, of course, everyone wants to know about is, was there human sacrifice? And the answer is 
Yes, there absolutely was. We have very, very good data for that. I believe in the sacred cenote at Chichen Itza, I believe they found 57 sets of human remains. Now, that doesn't mean they were full skeletons, but they had enough of each one to show that there were 57 separate individuals. I may have that number wrong, but it's it's like that. It's not four, you know, it's dozens and dozens. Now, don't think that that happened every Sunday. These cenotes are places that people came to for hundreds and hundreds of years. So I don't want you guys to think that human sacrifice happened like, you know, every weekend, Sunday, 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 come to the cenote. You know, it wasn't like that. It's a very special time and a very just important, deep ritual that's going to happen at that moment. So, yes, there is human sacrifice now. Where the pseudo-archaeology crowd gets it wrong is the way that they show it. You've probably heard aspects of human sacrifice at the cenotes, and lots of what you heard is probably wrong or probably a little bit weird or off. Now, in terms of most of our pseudo-archaeology stories, this one, it's not really focused. It's just kind of lazy. And what I mean by that is your classic kind of false story about the cenotes is that they sacrificed a young woman like a virginal maiden and threw her in there to placate the gods right and that is actually in terms of human sacrifice almost perfectly 100 wrong from the actual data and where does this come from this story of the young virginal female being thrown into the cenote you know i think it's, it comes from Early 20th century movies, culture, pop culture, you know, how many thousand times have we seen the young woman in distress that the hero has to save, right? So the the sort of King Kong aspect of things, the throwing the woman into the volcano kind of thing, you know, it's comes from Hollywood narratives, I think. I haven't seen a definitive spot of the whole throw the woman in the cenote thing of like where it came, but you just, you have a lot of this and it's just sort of been lazily taken up in culture over time. Oh, didn't they sacrifice the young virginal woman? No. How do we know this? Because we can sex the skeletons that have come out of the sacred cenote and in other contexts like this, and they're overwhelmingly male. And it really looks like that there were two types of, people who were sacrificed. Those are captives from warfare, which totally makes sense, right? You're warring with the other city state down the way. You take some captives and you sacrifice them into the cenote and bastard children. I know it's sad. I know it's a bummer. Just reporting the news, but that is what we see now. I know your follow-up question is like, Hey, Kinkella, how can you tell from their skeleton that they're bastard children? You can't, but the Spanish did give us some accounts of some of this when they first interacted with the Maya in the early mid 1500s. They did notice, took note of a handful of these rituals. So specifically what would happen to the person who's going to be sacrificed? They are going to be basically brought to the edge. There's going to be lots of pomp and circumstances, be lots of ritual that goes with this. They are going to be Sliced through the chest. 
Now, this doesn't mean that you're going to take the heart out or anything like that. This is another sort of pseudo archaeology thing. It's not where you rip the heart out and it's still beating and the shaman's there, you know, with incantations. It's not like that. You slice across the chest. And then, of course, there's just a ton of bleeding. And then after sort of the person has bled for a while, they're ultimately thrown into the cenote. Now, remember, this is a ritual sacrifice. So it has to be real, right? It has to hurt. And I don't even mean just hurt the person. It's like hurt the community. You know, you have to give to the God because the, the blood from the gaping wound in the chest must flow as rain, right? That's the idea because ultimately it's a time of drought. You're calling for rain, rain for the corn, okay? It's always about corn. It's always about the harvest. So that's why you're going to do something like this. And that's the idea behind it. So it's a serious thing, right? It's not frivolous. It's not kind of silly. It's not overwrought. There's specifics there. Now, in terms of the belief system, there's the Maya had a pantheon of gods, right? And there's all kinds of deep mythology. And they talk about the hero twins and all this kind of great stuff. In this moment, since we're talking about water, the two gods that are going to be important here are Chalk. Chalk is the rain god. And so you're sort of sacrificing to him. And lots of people know Chalk. I've heard of that god. It is the same god as for the Aztec Tlaloc. You can sort of hear the same term, right? It's You got to realize there's hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of years between when that word is first used, the name, and then by the time the Aztec come around, many, many, many generations later. So Chuck is great, you know, the bringer of rain and thunder and all that kind of good stuff. But my favorite god is actually the other guy who doesn't get nearly as much press, the water lily serpent. The water lily serpent is the god of standing water, right? The god of water on the ground, springs and rivers and lakes and that kind of stuff and cenotes. So the water lily serpent is going to be much more interrelated to the cenote. So we're hoping like that gods like Chalk and the water lily serpent will give us rain, will help us control rain, will help us have the rain come. And these kind of belief systems, you still see some of these in Maya villages today in terms of the idea of, of a serpent that goes with the cenote and also of the water of a cenote being sacred, of the water being used by the village, like being, being collected from the cenote and brought back to the village to be used in important rituals. It's really great, right? You see this. Uh, still occurring in in modern times, this idea of sacred water. So cenotes are a high stakes spot, right? And I know this isn't the world's most scientific thing to say, but when you come across them, you can just feel it just about. And I don't mean feel it in terms of feeling the spirits or anything like that. I, I actually mean kind of literally as you walk through the jungle, since there are a body of water, that area is cooler. The air is a bit cooler. You can feel them as you come across them. And when you're living in a hot tropical environment, that feeling of cool is just fantastic and majestic. And the idea of fresh water that you can just drink is just an amazing thing, especially during the dry season, of course. So the location of cenotes are always going to be known by the Maya and the Maya communities, 
I'm sure they were always claimed by the local Maya cities and town, right? Everyone knew where the cenotes were. Everyone knew the ones that were the important ritual ones. Everyone knew the ones that were more public that you could just go to and get water. And this is going to be a major thing for Maya society and culture. And that was one of the great joys for me in studying it. And speaking of my studying of it, when we return, some select silly things that happened to me in the Maya jungle. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, and welcome back to the Pseudo-Archaeology Podcast, episode 114. And we have been talking about the Maya cenotes. And we've talked about how I originally got into studying the cenotes, in my case, in Belize, what I was hoping to get from my studies, which was ultimately a job in the community college world, which I did. We talked about the history of Maya cenotes in terms of how they related to the ancient Maya and all the way up to the modern Maya, that how some of these cenotes have seen been seen as ritual places that have sacred water, that you can use in specific ritual events. Now, in terms of my own learning on this and specifically my own collecting of data for my master's thesis and my dissertation, that equated to lots of time walking through the jungle, sleeping in hammocks, sleeping in tents, and being very sweaty and uncomfortable. Now, I treasure those moments dearly though you know looking back from my air conditioned home but my students always ask me oh, what happened to you what happened in the jungle man what was it like <laughs> and i guess i could just relate to you a handful of experiences that i had you know in those summers as i studied the cenotes of the belizean jungles i would say that People ask, like, how long was there? What's a typical summer? I mean, the, the longest I was ever there was four months. But I would say a typical summer, I would be there for maybe two months, something like that. Somewhere between like six weeks and two months, typical summer. And usually I was able to return at the end of the day to where we were staying. Like I could get back to the trucks and we could drive back to a place that where there was like a structure of some kind, you know, where we lived in like for quite a few years, we lived at a, like a jungle lodge kind of place that was very basic, but very nice, right? This was not tent camping. So most days I could do that, but every so often 
I did have to just live out in the jungle if I if I was walking out too far because what I was doing I was creating a transect which is a cut through the jungle right and I started at this one major site in our area Yalbak and it was like two and a half miles out to the pools and then an extra like seven or eight miles across the pools something like that so I was miles and miles out what that meant is some nights I did have to sleep overnight in the jungle one one week I do remember spending a work week in the jungle from we went out on Monday and I stayed out there until Friday. So I do remember doing that and I would sleep in tents. I would sleep in hammocks. It would just sort of depend. I used to like hammocks better. Now I like tents better. Personal tip because hammocks, man, once you're in the jungle in a hammock, well, you better enjoy sleeping on your back because that's all you got. And when I think back, that's that's what kind of comes across my brain is those times sleeping in the hammock, you know, and just getting camp ready at dusk. So on a, a typical day, you're going to get up early, early in the morning, right? You're kind of getting up with the sun and you're not doing this in a chipper fashion. You're doing this in a very rickety fashion. You're tired your joints are just tired, your back hurts. And this isn't because you're an old person. Like this is even when you're young. You didn't really get in. You slept uh, very restless. You have just a bunch of mosquito bites. You're kind of sweaty. You got that like sheen of like slime on you at all times just because it's like sweat that you can never go away. Even if for some reason you were able to take a shower, it comes back after like 20 minutes. And you get up kind of just kind of creaky and you just, you know, like you're, you're in your mosquito net and you know, like, oh my God, I'm going to have to open this up and they're going to get me because mosquitoes are ever present, right? So you open up your mosquito net and you're like, oh, here we go. And you do, and then you just start to get bit by mosquitoes immediately because the sun's just about to come up and mosquitoes are worse at, at dawn and at dusk. So you get up, you try and like maintain your sanity and you get some sort of breakfast. Maybe sometimes you make a fire. A lot of times I didn't make a fire because it was just too much of a pain. So I would just like, I don't know. I, I, I remember I would eat, I would make a peanut butter and jelly tortillas all the time. I would just like make those, roll them up. I'm not a huge breakfast person. And I would just sort of eat and I would get my equipment together for the day you kind of get your backpack set up because you're gonna have to you have to break down camp a lot of times so you're taking down your hammock just getting everything set for walking like i find that when you camp you you kind of put everything out to camp and then you have to bring it all back in to walk you gotta bring it bring it everything back into your pack you gotta kind of get your machete ready to roll. Um, you got to make sure your canteen is full. You got to make sure that your like GPS unit has batteries in it. You got to make sure that your pencil's working. You got to make sure that you have a pencil. Ask me how I know about that one. Don't forget your pencil. You have your paperwork. You got to make sure that stuff isn't destroyed. And then once you're ready, you, you just kind of head out, kind of groggy. And then the day goes by pretty smooth like you just you just you, then you're just a machine right it's like the the sun starts to get hotter and you walk and what i would do is i'd i'd walk and record walk and record whether it be the edge of a cenote whether it would be small maya mounds between cenotes 
you're just walking, you're taking out paperwork, you're making notes, you're making measurements all the time, right? And you're just kind of going place to place and you have some idea of where you're going. You're like, okay, my compass is set at 41 and a half degrees. I'm walking 41 and a half degrees through the jungle. You're doing a lot of cutting. Your, your wrist is just constantly moving with your machete as you kind of walk very, very slowly forward. At, at one point, you're going to eat lunch. Lunch is always difficult because, again, there's just there's mosquitoes and bugs and stuff always going around. And you're in the jungle. In the jungle, there's never a place to sit down. You're like, man, if I just one thing you're looking for when lunch is coming, I'm like, please, God, a boulder. Please, God, may, they, may there be a boulder here in this Maya jungle. And sometimes you'll find some place where you can sit. And that's great. Sitting on the ground is the worst. You don't want to do that. You always have to have a tarp or something because there's too many bugs. You cannot just sit straight on straight to the ground. It's going to be super wet and damp and nasty too. And then you eat your lunch. Lunch is always quick. Lunch is like 20 minutes when you're doing this kind of thing. It's not relaxing. It's oddly more relaxing to keep walking at like a really slow pace. I, I, it's hard to explain unless you've been in a situation like this. So you eat and while you've gotten calories, you don't feel any more nourished in a weird way. You just feel like it just took so much energy to eat. Oh, well, then you keep going. You record more. Day goes by. Now the sun's going down. This is a key moment in the jungle. So the in the jungle, it gets dark quick. As soon as you're, as soon as it's like 5 p.m., you're like, we're looking for a place to camp for the night, right? Make sure it's not a swamp. Make sure if, if it rains at night, which it will, make sure you're not going to get washed away. Like, seriously, find a place that's kind of up-ish and dry-ish, rocky-ish is great. And then set up your tent or set up your hammock, right? That time, then the mosquitoes are going to come out even worse in force because it's, it's dusk and then it gets dark super fast. So you better have your hammock already strung like super fast. And then you kind of eat a little dinner or something, but then the night comes. And as soon as it's dark, you're just like, well, I guess I'm going to sleep. And then night has its own craziness. The night creatures come out. Stuff that's happened to me at night. You'll just listen to the jungle for a while. And I remember this one, you guys. I'm in a hammock, right? Got my mosquito net around. And I hear this. I'm, I'm camped like right next to one of the cenotes. And I hear this. And I'm like, oh, my God. That's a jaguar. Now, it wasn't right next to me. But it was like on the other side of the cenote and the cenote was not that big. <laughs> you know, it was like 100 feet away, you know, or something like that. Right. 150 feet away, something like that. You're like, and I'm just sitting there. I'm like my like arms and legs are all like together, you know, like I'm in I'm in my hammock trying to like disappear into myself, you know, and I'm like, it's a jaguar. Oh, my God. Just needs to go away. You know, <laughs> But there's like nothing I can do. I hear it. <laughs> no, that's that's the sound that jaguars make. It's weird. They they will growl sometimes. They will do like a. But 
I never really heard that in the general. And again, Jaguars, you come across very, very rarely. But that that sort of tired dog sound, that's what that's what they do. And of course, so it was a Jaguar at night and it had come to drink at the cenote. And I just had to like I had to chill in my hammock. <laughs> Let it go. Another night I was this this night I was sleeping in a tent and like I heard something like super late at night, like pulling like, like I heard something in my stuff. Like, like when you use a tent, you usually put most of your stuff in the tent to kind of keep bugs and animals from it. But I could hear an animal getting something and I like unzip my tent and it was a possum. And the possum was like pulling my like favorite bandana. It had like gotten it out of my bag or something. I think I'd had my bag outside, but it was all zipped up. It like pulled it out. So then I grabbed the other side of my bandana because I'm not letting this go. This is my favorite bandana, dude. And so I had a tug of war with a possum at like two in the morning in the pitch black of the Maya jungle. It's like hissing, you know, and I'm like pulling my, and I'm like, no, there's no way I'm letting this like bandana go. Cause dude, that bandana was awesome. Another night I was just sleeping in my hammock and at like three in the morning, it just goes boof because sometimes in the dark, knots are hard to tie correctly. So I tied my hammock incorrectly. And then at like three in the morning, my hammock fell down, like just right, right onto the jungle ground. And you're so tired. At first, I was like, screw it. And so I like, I, I laid there for like, I don't know, 15 minutes, you know, because I was just like, I can't get up. But then I finally had to get up and, and retie my hammock at, in the dark. And, and you have you try and turn your flashlight on. You try and see. It's like terrible. So on a typical night, these kind of things happen, which is one of the reasons why in the morning you're so tired because you were freaked out about the jaguar or you had a tug of war with an opossum. You know, in terms of being tired during the day, Here's my last one. This is I remember. So walking through the jungle, there's these trees that are called poke no boy trees. It's like poke no boy. And they're just full of spines. Their diameter isn't very large. Like they're maybe like four inches across or something. They're, they're skinny, but they are covered in thick, long, super sharp spines. I mean, they are like it's just it almost looks like a hair like like it's just covered with these hard thick spines all over the place super pokey super annoying i was so tired once that we had stopped walking we were wa walking towards the cenotes and i was going to go diving and so not only did i have my pack with my tent and all that stuff i was also carrying a scuba tank across my shoulders with sort of both arms up, you know, holding either side, like kind of like Atlas holding the world right behind my neck and my whole big full backpack on. And it was just super heavy and I was sweaty and I was so tired. This is like two or three in the afternoon. You get so tired, like walking, my feet hurt. And I was just, I was so exhausted that I lost my balance because I, I was just holding so much that, that if your center of gravity gets off a little bit, you start to like slowly fall over. I started to slowly fall over, like super slow, you know, and I didn't try and catch myself or anything. I was super tired 
and there was a Pocnoboy tree right next to my shoulder. And I just allowed myself to fall right into the Pocnoboy tree. And I just allowed the spines to sink like right into my shoulder. And I just didn't care. Now, that sounds crazy. And just telling you that story right now, I'm like, I really did that? What was I doing? But I remember that. And it sounds crazy and weird. But what I hope you get from that is how tired you are and you just don't care anymore. Right. And so once I fell into the tree and was stuck to it with the spines right into my shoulder, I just slowly got my pack straightened and allowed the weight of it to pull me off the spines and back up. Now, that's probably not the most attractive story you've ever heard. But even with the spines of the Pocnoboy tree, I do have to say that my years studying the cenotes in the Belizean jungle were the most dynamic, exciting, memorable bits of archaeology that I've ever done. And with that, I'll see you guys next time. Thanks for listening to the Pseudo Archaeology Podcast. Please like and subscribe wherever you like and subscribe. And if you have questions for me, Dr. Andrew Kinkella, feel free to reach out using the links below or go to my YouTube channel, Kinkella Teaches Archaeology. See you guys next time. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Com.